0: And if you would, open your Bibles with me to Nahum chapter 1. Another minor prophet, another bit of gold leaf cracking as we go into the places in our Bibles where we normally fear to tread. Last week, we closed the book of Micah, and we closed Micah chapter 7 with that wonderful look at the reality that God's people have hope even in hopeless times, and the reason is because of our theology. See, theology is not an academic study. Theology at its heart is not a desire to learn more information about a particular topic, and the topic just happens to be God. When we talk about theology, what we know and understand to be true about God must impact our lives. God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's justice, those are not simply words. Those are things that shape how we respond to crisis. And Micah was a prophet in crisis. He was an obedient man preaching to a disobedient people. He was facing opposition and even rejection. And the fact is, uh, when we feel the same, when we undergo the same kind of circumstances, we are either going to respond to those difficult circumstances in light of the truth that we know about God, submit to the will of God, respond with the joy that understands who God is, or we're going to respond to the lies of the enemy, the lies of our flesh, and we'll respond with the fruit of the flesh. But all of that is driven not just by head knowledge, but by a deep, heart understanding of who this God is that we serve. And we know that God is faithful. That whole book closed with the reminder that God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that although hundreds of years have passed, although his people are now crushed and oppressed, God has not forgotten. That God remains faithful to every word of every promise that he has ever made. And this week, as we open up the book of Nahum, we're going to look at the character of God uh, in a way that might be a little bit unfamiliar and maybe even a little bit uncomfortable to us. We're going to see the character of God revealed in his wrath against sin. And you say, we've seen that through the minor prophets. This time it's not towards his people, it's toward a people who are outside of his covenant. It is what God's fire and flood of judgment look like toward his adversaries. Nahum chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Nahum chapter 1 verse 1, this is what God's word says. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes as we do on a weekly basis, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we sing about our longing to hear the voice of God. We understand that this is how we hear your voice, that through your word you have spoken to your people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see and to understand, and not only to see and understand, but then to respond rightly. God, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. On our own, we don't bring willingness. We bring stubbornness and darkness. Lord, we are wholly dependent on you, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification, for our process of becoming more like you. But God, we know that you are good and faithful to every promise that you've made. And you've promised that you will not leave your people, that you will not abandon your people, that you won't leave us without understanding, but that you will equip us and enable us to do every good work that you've called us to do. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to bring you back a couple of years. It was my grandfather 's 90th birthday and uh The whole family was gathered at my grandpa's house. It was just a bit after COVID. We were all outside. So we're kind of gathered by his garage. And my grandpa is very, very much into machines and machinery. He makes his own parts. He makes his own screws for like the steam engines that he builds. Just a a brilliant guy when it comes to forming things with his hands. And so for his birthday, we had gotten him kind of these long, heavy extrusions of metal. And I went around the corner to get some uh, from his garage so that we can bring them to him and reveal his wonderful present. And as I'm carrying these heavy bars around the corner, my youngest brother decides to wait on the other side, and as I'm coming around the corner where everyone can see me, he reaches out and he smacks me, which I could do nothing about, other than drop the bars, hit my knee, hurt my foot, and be a little bit, more than a little bit embarrassed in front of everyone. And like the mature man that I am, I could not abide by that. And so a bit later, it came time that we were all going to say something to my grandpa. Uh, We were going to stand in front of the group and say meaningful things, how he's impacted us. And so I got up there and very brilliantly and eloquently, as you can imagine, expressed my thanks for who he is and uh, how he's been used in my life. And there were tears and applause, maybe not applause, but he was moved. And my brother was going next. And so I took the opportunity to tell him that not only was my brother going to come up next, but that my brother had written a poem expressing his gratitude for my grandpa. Now, not only had my brother not prepared a poem, he hadn't thought about what he was going to say before he came up there, which is fine if you know my brother. But in that moment, when everybody turned to him with expectation and anticipation in their eyes, and he had no idea what to say, I was vindicated. (laughs) And in that moment, all was right with the world. And I tell you that to ask you this. Is there a difference between me taking revenge on my brother in that circumstance and a judge... Declaring a murderer to be guilty and sentencing him to death. And you say, Yeah, one's a lot more serious than your little feelings, and you would be right, but the reality is that one of those is petty vengeance, and the other one of those is justice. It's an avenging of a life, but it's recognized as not only just, but right. And I want us to think through that, because as we come to Nahum chapter 1, if you were listening to those first five verses I read, it talks about God being a God of vengeance. A concept and an idea that, let's be honest, we're going to wrestle with a little bit. Nahum is a book of God's vengeance poured out on his enemies. God's wrath poured out on his enemies. And not restoration promised for those enemies. And so I want us to think carefully about that, and I want us to think rightly about that. And as we open up Nahum today, we'll work through kind of the introductory stuff. We're going to work through the context of the book, the questions that help us answer what it's about and why it matters. And then we're going to look through the chapter one, and we're going to see the content that really develops the character of God in that unique and challenging way. So as we open up uh, chapter one, we're going to look at the context first. And as we look at context of a book, we're going to ask the same questions that we always do. First of all, who wrote it? Who wrote it and who is it written to? And chapter 1, verse 1 answers those questions for us. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Now that's fairly unique. Most of the works that we've seen in the Minor Prophets, with the exception of Jonah and maybe one or two others, is going to be directed toward God's people. God reveals to his people his displeasure at their covenant faithlessness, their rejection, their rebellion, their idolatry. And most of the minor prophets have been dedicated toward warnings to Israel and Judah that God is going to act in justice and deal with the sins of his people, but this is different. This oracle is directed at the city of Nineveh, which was the seat of power for the Assyrian Empire. The next slide up there is going to show you relatively where the Assyrian Empire was located. So you have that northern kingdom of Israel there, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then to the north and to the east is the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria was a major power in the ancient Near East. For hundreds of years, they exercised dominion and authority over a huge swath of the land, and their cities, Nineveh in particular, were fairly amazing. Nineveh is one of the oldest inhabited human cities. We can trace its history back farther than almost any other city. And if you look at the next slide, it's kind of an artist rendition of what they call the palaces of the kings of Nineveh. When Jonah talks about Nineveh as a great city, it was indeed a great city, walls 100 feet high in some places, uh, so thick that three chariots could ride abreast on top of these embattlements. Thousands upon thousands of people in the city itself and in its local environs there. Wealth, buildings, palaces, courtyards that would even dwarf anything that was in Jerusalem. They were a great power. It was a great city. But not only was it a great city, these are a people of great and terrible violence. Assyria was a brutal and ruthless conqueror. Assyria's tactics were so violent and so brutal that they were intended to strike fear into their enemies before they even showed up to kind of sap the will to resist. Their armies are feared all over the ancient Near East. And so when it comes to who is this book written to, that is the city that this book is directed toward. And we can also answer who wrote it. It says this is the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And all that we know really is the name of the prophet, like so many of the other minor prophets, we're not given a great deal of his background, of his history. We simply know his name and the place where he's from in Kosh, And that's the place where usually I would pop up another slide that shows you kind of where he was from in relation to the northern or the southern kingdom. And the reality is we can't do that because we don't even know exactly where Kosh is. Uh, there are some people who think he was from Galilee. Uh, the city of Capernaum means city of Nahum. That's unlikely, but that's one thought. Uh, There's some people uh, that think there's a city outside of modern-day Mosul, which is in Iraq, and that's called Al-Kosh, and some think that he was from as far away as that, which would have even been in Assyrian provinces. Uh, The reality is we don't know. Al-Kosh has been lost largely to time, uh, but what we can be sure of is that ultimately this is the vision given to Nahum by God. And like all of the rest of Scripture, this is breathed out, inspired by God. Which is why this book, like all of other scripture, has authority. It has the voice of God behind it. So it has the power of God to compel his people and even the nations to listen. The next question that helps us kind of understand a book is to ask when it was written. You remember when we went through Micah, he gave us the names of three kings that helped us date his reign. And we could say, so Micah prophesied during the reigns of these three kings, and that goes along with this block of years. And so we could put it fairly certainly at a particular time. You'll notice very quickly that Nahum chapter 1 verse 1 doesn't do that. We're not given a lot of context as to when it happened. So we have to pull some things from the book to help give us an idea. And in your bulletins, you have that timeline of the prophets that might be helpful for some of you who really retain things visually to kind of see where he lines up. Uh, The book is going to talk largely about the coming destruction of Nineveh. It talks about Nineveh as a city that will undergo judgment. So this has to be written before kind of the total collapse of the Assyrian empire, which is in about 612 BC. On on the other side of the dating, in chapter 3 verse 8, Nahum's going to talk about a city called Thebes, And he's going to describe Thebes as a city that has already been destroyed. And we know that that city was destroyed around 660 B.C. So we have kind of this 50-year window of when Nahum was written. As you read through it, it is clear that Assyria is strong when he writes this. Nahum 1, verse 12 says they are at full strength and many will be cut down. Although they are at full strength, many will be cut down. So this is written at a time of Assyrian power. So it's likely earlier in that window than later. So a good date. For the book of Nahum, it's about 650 B.C., for those of you keeping track at home. Uh, but again, we can't be dogmatic. We simply know who it's written to. Uh, when it was written, we can provide a, a pretty good guess. But what we can answer with some certainty is the why it was written. In one sense, it remains the same as every other minor prophet that we've run through. Nahum is going to reveal God in a way that is really unique to the minor prophets. It is going to put his holiness his sovereignty his justice and his mercy on display it's the reason those are on the banners behind me those themes are going to come up again and again and again but more specifically than that we can say this is written to Nineveh because of Nineveh's great evil and the judgment that's coming and in particular God is going to deal with the sins of Nineveh as they relate to his people So we know that God deals with the sin of Israel and Judah over and over and over in the minor prophets. We have seen that God cannot and will not ignore the sins of his people. But we're also reminded that God is the God of the nations. We saw that in Joel as well. Remember, Joel wrote to the Edomites and he said, you don't fall outside of God's purview. You belong to him as well. This really gives us kind of the same picture. Nahum reminds us that God is the God over Nineveh. And that up to this point, he has been gracious to Nineveh. God has graciously allowed Nineveh to survive, and not only survive, but to thrive even though they are wicked. God has given them time to turn from their sin. More than that, we know that God sent Jonah to warn them of their sin. And under the preaching of Jonah, we remember that there was great change. That was over 100 years before Nahum was written. That change was not permanent. They very quickly fell back into a a time of violence, arrogance, idolatry. And by the time Nahum writes, Assyria is not only powerful again, but Assyria has wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. The armies of Assyria have come in. They have conquered Samaria. They have utterly put an end to the kings of the northern kingdom. They have scattered the people. They have moved Jews out of Israel. They have moved others in, which was a favorite tactic, because when you begin to blend the people, you begin to remove a nationalistic identity, which means they don't rebel as easily. But Assyria has brutally come against God's people, overcoming the northern kingdom. They have come up and they have threatened the very gates of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And the reality is that God is going to take vengeance for himself. God is going to vindicate his name among the nations. And before we jump into the content of chapter 1, I want to remind you why that not only should make sense, but why we should expect that. Why would we expect that God deals with those who come against his people? Because, like Micah closed with, God made particular promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God promise Abraham? When you think of the Abrahamic covenant, your mind should go to three things, land, seed, and blessing. God said, I'm going to give you a land, a possession for you and your descendants forever. I am going to give you, descendants, seed as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashores, and I am going to bless you. He told Abraham, I am going to greatly bless you, and I will bless those who bless you. And what's the second half of that? I will curse those who curse you. In other words, God will deal with those who come against his people. And so even in God's vengeance on the enemies of Israel, it is actually a demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to everything that he had promised Hundreds and hundreds of years before this is written. God is faithful to his covenant promises from generation to generation. God will even use the wicked to discipline his people. That's something that the next prophet that we go through is really going to struggle with. But God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And when we have those things settled, we can now begin to dive into this great little book. And as we work through chapter 1, we're going to see the character of God revealed. Not just a content and what's going to happen, but everything that Nahum says, particularly in chapter 1, demonstrates the character of God. And it's given in a series of contrasts that we are going to work through quickly and then develop more next week as we go into chapter 2 and chapter 3. But everything that we go through is presented in this series of, at least to my mind, are these really kind of abrasive and even confrontational ideas sometimes. Things about God that don't really make sense and maybe not really mesh well in our minds. And you'll see what I mean as we go through this. But chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, what we're going to see is God's character revealed in his vengeance. Look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Right away, we're introduced to the idea of vengeance of God. Three times in that one verse. And right away, that's something we might struggle with. Because what is vengeance? Vengeance has that idea of to take revenge, to restore something that was lost from you, to make something right, to balance an account there. And we struggle with that because you and I are actually commanded not to take vengeance, aren't we? It's made very clear, particularly in the New Testament, that we are not to be a vengeful people, that we are not to seek to settle our own scores. Well, that's because our vengeance usually comes out of anger, uh, pride like my pride that was damaged at my grandfather's birthday that's really what drove that it wasn't any desire for justice it was the desire to knock my brother back down a few pegs our vengeance centers around the need to justify ourselves to raise ourselves up but god's vengeance isn't like ours god's vengeance is perfectly balanced perfectly aligned with all of his other attributes all of his other perfections God's vengeance is in accordance with his righteousness, with his perfect justice. Not only his idea and his understanding of what is right and wrong, but his perfect ability to deal with right and wrong. And if you look at that phrase, what he says, the Lord keeps wrath for his enemies, there's a sobering contrast there. There's a reason that I opened our reading this morning out of Exodus 34. Because out of Exodus 34, what does it say? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What does God keep for his people? Steadfast love for thousands of thousands, generation upon generation. But for his enemies, what does God keep? It says that he keeps wrath... For his enemies. God's consistent character, God's perfect knowledge is a comfort to his people, but it is a terror to his enemies. One commentator put it this way The vengeance of the Lord is his fierce protection of his holiness and covenant promises. The vengeance of the Lord is his fierce protection of his holiness and his covenant promises. So when we phrase it that way, is God right to do that? He is. God is right and righteous to guard and defend his holiness. But that vengeance, it's not uncontrolled. Once again, it functions in perfect harmony with his other attributes. And in particular, the next thing that we see is we see not only his vengeance, but we see his patience. God's vengeance functions in perfect harmony with God's patience. And if we're honest, we struggle with that, again, because you and I are a people of extremes. And typically, we're a people of sinful extremes. We've struggled to find the balance between justice and mercy, between grace and punishment Between anger and patience, we have to understand that God doesn't. God does not struggle with that in the same way that we do. God has no sin nature that pulls him toward one evil extreme or the other. At the very same time that God is perfectly and rightly vengeful with his enemies, God is also perfectly and righteously patient. Verse 3 The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Did that sound familiar? The idea that the Lord will by no means clear the the guilty, but that the Lord is slow to anger. It's again coming right out of that thought in Exodus 34. God demonstrates great patience. And the history of humanity is a picture of God's constant patience. All the way back, go to Genesis 6, and God sees that the wickedness of mankind has spread across the earth. And that God is grieved that he has made man. And what does he do? He says there's going to be a flood. God is going to deal with the sin. But the flood waits while Noah builds and Noah preaches. Israel's history is a tapestry of God's patience. A stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people who are constantly given the grace and the mercy of God as he delays his punishment for their sin. Nineveh itself has existed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before God will finally deal with their sin. Uh, we can go all the way to right now. You look around the world and you wonder, what's going on? How can God sit in heaven idly as this world wastes away, as it progresses from evil to evil in this pattern and cycle of downward rebellion and rejection and filth? What in the world is God waiting for? Well, we're told in Second Peter that God is not slow as some count slowness but that he is what? Patient. Why? Because he doesn't delight in destruction. He is not willing that any should perish. God will not lose one of the people that he has called to himself, and God will delay. And while God delays, while he extends his patience, men and women are saved. See, if we're reading carefully, it's fascinating how both Jonah and Nineveh, or sorry, Jonah and Nahum, speaking to a pagan city, they refer to the same character of god that character of god that's not just for a covenant people but that character of god that demonstrates how he interacts with his creation from beginning to end and the god of justice is also the god of patience as he calls sinners to repentance the next section of verses describes the power of god as he acts in his anger so we move from the avenging god to the patient god And now we have to deal with the anger of God. He's the God who dries up the sea and the rivers. He's the God who makes the fertile places wither. He's the God before whom the mountains quake and the hills melt. He's the God before whom the earth shakes, the world and all who dwell in it. And verse 6, the question, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And the implied answer is no one. How could you hope to stand against a God who can shake the mountains himself? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken to pieces by him. And as uncomfortable as it might be, you and I have to come to the reality that there are times when God is angry. We can't biblically paint a picture of a God who is all tolerance and all patience. And all forbearance, and who never deals with sin in righteous, just anger. God is angry at sin and at those who reject and rebel against Him. Now, verses like that are hard for us to process. And typically, that's because we can't harmonize our anger and God's anger. Once again, you read through God's word, and what does it say about our anger? We are supposed to put off our anger. Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Colossians 3, 8 says the same thing. Now, are we allowed to be angry? We're told to be angry, but not to sin. But the fact is that the Bible never tells us to remain in our anger or to cultivate our anger. There are things that ought to make us angry. Sin ought to engender a particular response in us. When we see injustice, when we see abuse, when we see violence, those things ought to impact us. They ought to stir us. They ought to strike us as horrible and tragic. But the fact is that there is nothing in my anger that I can accomplish on those even to recognize that those sinful things ought to bring about a particular response. Why is it that I'm never told to rest in my anger? Well, because as James tells us in James 1.19, we're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Because even if I look at this whole broken world, and the mess that it's in, even if I look at the most horrible, unjust situation, and I attempt to respond to that in my anger, my anger will never accomplish righteousness in that situation. Which is why I'm told to respond to those situations with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and to entrust that God in his anger and in his vengeance and in his justice will deal with that in a way that I cannot Because my anger is tainted by sin. So we deal rightly with anger by allowing a righteous God to deal with it in His. And let's be honest, I am typically much angrier at the sins of other people than I am at my own sin. Imagine if I was as angry at my sin as I am at the sins of others. God is not tainted by a fallen nature. God looks at sin and can be perfectly and holy in his anger toward a rebellion that is always completely against him. And so the picture that's given is that the anger of the Lord is like fire poured out and consuming the iniquity and the failure of this wicked nation that has come against God and come against his people. But it doesn't stop there. Because immediately after that, We see the goodness of God. How do you go from the anger of God to the goodness of God? Listen to this transition. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It's a little bit of theological whiplash there. We go right from God's anger to the idea that God is good. And those things stand in such stark contrast to us. Those things in our lives are so at odds that we read a passage like this, and we say, how can God be both of those things? How can God be angry and good? Because when I am angry, I am typically not good. But God is good, and he always has been. Which is such a blessing because the anger of God, if it weren't balanced by the goodness of God, would be a terrifying thing. Do you understand that the sovereignty of God, if he was not good, is a terrifying doctrine? The holiness of God, if he is not a good God, is terrifying. The justice of God, if he is not good, those are terrifying. The fact that God is good in all of those things makes them hopeful and even encouraging. The world... Fails to see this. See, the world reads through the Old Testament, and God is portrayed as a, a capricious killer of His creation. In fact, one character in a show that I was watching this week said that she wouldn't trust God to babysit her children. That's what happens when you don't read the whole context of Scripture. It's what happens when you cherry pick certain stories. It's what happens when you don't actually understand the theology of God, because Scripture is an overwhelming representation of God's goodness to His creation overwhelming evidence that his anger is not like mine because even his anger is driven by his goodness why does god hate sin because he is good and because good must abhor and hate that what is evil or it wouldn't actually be good but then we say but what about god's people what about israel judah make it more personal what about you and i are we good no aren't we more like nineveh maybe than we would like to admit sometimes We're fallen. We're imperfect. But the reality is that in his goodness, God has promised to hold and keep his people. Can you imagine that? People who deserve the wrath of God are told to take shelter in the goodness of God. And I love what it says, that he knows those who take refuge in him. The almighty, infinite, perfectly holy God of creation knows his people. I'm pretty sure that matters to us when we feel like nobody really knows about us and nobody really cares about us and we are just about as alone in this world as we can get. We're reminded that there is a good God, a sovereign and powerful and holy and just God who is a good God who knows his people and who invites them and calls them to take rest and refuge in him. But what about those who don't take refuge in him? Well, to those, we see the next character trait of God, and that is his judgment. In this case, the people of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria, there's a judgment that is coming. His anger was pictured like a fire, and now in verse 8 it says, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. The fire and the flood that sweeps away everything before it. Now, when God talked about judgment that was coming to Israel, how was it described? Fierce? Painful? Severe? But what have we seen through the minor prophets, again, over and over, that that judgment is never final? That in every single minor prophet, you realize that, in every single minor prophet, although the sins of Israel and Judah have been put on display, God has promised a restoration. When it comes to Nineveh and viewing the character of God from the perspective of those who are his enemies, who will continue to reject him, There is no restoration promised. God's judgment here is pictured as this final thing. Verse 9, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. The end of verse 10, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Verse 12, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Verse 14, no more will your name be perpetuated. The idea of a name being utterly cut off he says the house of your gods i will cut off the card image and the metal image i will make your grave for you are vile god is going to cut down not only the nation but their idolatry and he's going to assign them to the grave because they're vile they're filthy they're dirty that's what sin does it corrupts entirely see the end of god's enemies isn't restoration there is an end coming where God will deal on an eternal scale with those who stand against him. But even here in this warning to Nineveh, we're reminded once again of his faithfulness. Nineveh, in a picture of strength, is going to be brought to ruin. Nineveh, in her thriving idolatry, is going to be brought low. But Judah in their humility, is going to be raised up. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace to a people that have been overcome, God promises peace. What about to to their worship? Their worship in Israel that had been so long tainted and broken and intermittent at best. God says, keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nineveh is going to be dealt with, but this actually looks forward to a time when there is this final cutting off of God's enemies. Even in this little section at the end of chapter one of Nahum, there's this reminder that Nineveh will be dealt with, but the picture of God dealing with Nineveh is just that. It's a picture. It's a preview for his final judgment against sin, and it's a promise of his final restoration of his people. And that's what we're going to see in chapter one for today the justice and the mercy of God. And much like last week, I think the question in many of our minds is going to be, how in the world is this possible? How can God be just and merciful? How can God be vengeful and patient? How can God be angry and good? And you cannot leave here without understanding that the answer is wholly and completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. The goal is not to get you to understand the minor prophets for the sake of understanding the minor prophets. The goal is to move through the minor prophets to see that the faithfulness of God then is the faithfulness of God now. That the God who promised redemption for His people has provided salvation through His Son. How can God be vengeful and patient, just and merciful? The answer is Jesus Christ. God in His holiness will deal with sin, yours and mine. Every sin must be brought to account from those major sins that we would never talk about in public, the unspeakable, unthinkable things, to those minor sins that we excuse on a day-by-day basis. Every single one of them is an affront to our Creator and must be dealt with for the eternal treason that it is against the Holy God, our Creator. And either I will be held to account for my sin or Christ will have taken the penalty for me. God in his holiness demands that the wages of sin is death. God in his mercy says that grace is offered through the sacrifice of Christ. Who lived in perfect righteous obedience. Who lived every moment of every day in perfect humility. Perfect submission to the will of the Father and who on the cross did not bear the wrath of the Jews or the Romans, but who on the cross bore the wrath of God poured out against sin. And in his place, I am covered and clothed in his righteousness. So God in his holiness has dealt with my sin, and God in his mercy has viewed me as his son. God's holiness and hatred of sin, satisfied by the blood of the perfect lamb. What do we do with that? Well, I would invite you as you go through this week to grapple with these things. I want you to think through and wrestle with his vengeance and ours. I want you to actually spend time wrestling with where you feel you need to be avenged this week because maybe you've got them. Maybe it's as simple as your brother or sister, some of you sitting here, and what they did you must undo. Maybe it's the situation at work that you need to get even for. Maybe it's the situation in your family that you must make amends for. You must ensure that you are seen as right, just, and justified in the eyes of others. And yet, we're called to leave room for the vengeance of God, but we can do that because we know that God is an avenging God, not in a threatening way, but in the way that says that God will perfectly and finally make all accounts right. I want you to wrestle, secondly, with his anger and ours. I hear it justified a lot. God gets angry. I'm made in God's image. I must be allowed to get angry. After all, we're told, uh, be angry and do not sin. So I can cultivate anger as long as I don't sin. Tell me how you cultivate anger without sinning. I can't do it. (laughs) Now, why is it that certain things make us angry and should make us angry? Because God has shown us what is good and right and holy. But how then do I deal with my anger? Do I pour out my anger until the result that I want to see is achieved? Or do I work hard to put my anger to death because ultimately that is an act of faith in the God whose anger will finally purify sin? Once again, so much of this depends on our theology. If I don't trust that God is good, if I don't trust that God is sovereign, if I don't trust that God is indeed working in this situation, then of course I'm going to get angry because who does it depend on to set all things right? Me. Which, by the way, is what usually makes me angry. The idea that I have to deal with this because otherwise no one else will. What a blessed freedom it is to leave room for the wrath of God. A wrath that is perfectly encompassed, bound, balanced by all of his other perfections. Finally, his patience and ours. He has been so remarkably patient in my life every fault, every failure, every sin. You realize that the God who knows all things knows my sin even more deeply than I do, and yet he is patient. When would have been the just time to deal with my sin? In the moment. When would have been the just time to deal with the sins of Nineveh? Not in 600 BC, from the first, from the very beginning, and yet God is patient. God moves me along slowly. He corrects me gently. He moves me toward Christ likeness tenderly. And if that is the patience of God, even toward a ruined sinner like me, then how should I reflect that same patience to others around me? But that's hard. It's not hard, it's actually impossible. On our own strength, it is impossible. And yet, what a blessed promise! that God says that he will give us the strength to do all that he has called us to do. That love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are not things that pour naturally out of the heart of Matt Round. They are things that are produced by his spirit living in me. And what a wonderful thing to know that Jesus paid it all. That God is patient because his wrath has been satisfied by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And Lord, you are so holy. I pray that we would do the hard thing to see our sin for what it is. An affront and an abomination and a hateful thing. But Lord, to see your goodness and your patience even in the midst of that. We struggle. We're finite. We're fallen. And we can barely conceive of a God who would be good and angry a God who would be avenging and patient. And yet, Lord, here you are, presented to us in a way that defies our imagination because you are above and beyond all that we could think or imagine. You are holy and you are good. And Lord, we thank you that you made a way to atone for our sins, that Jesus Christ on the cross made it so that I don't anticipate the judgment of Nineveh, but that in your mercy we can anticipate the inheritance of sons and daughters of the king. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.